Well, good afternoon, Hallows Church. Let me invite you to grab your Bibles, turn them open to 1 John, to the passage that was read for us a moment ago by our friend Julie, 1 John chapter 1. We're in the middle of a series titled Gospel Saturated, and this series, it really kind of flows out of our, our shared desire to see lives flourish in gospel-saturated relationships. And we've been looking over the past couple of weeks about what type of profile, uh, what profiles a gospel-saturated relationships. What are some unique features and markers and characteristics of those types of engagements with other human beings? And so we said a couple of weeks ago that it, it starts with perspective, that the gospel changes our view of those who are different from ourselves so that we are more willing to step into relationships that are diverse, We cross cultures and subcultures in light of the gospel to befriend those who are not naturally like us or not uh, maybe uh, easily like us or or discernibly like us in some types of ways. And so a gospel-saturated relationship looks diverse. But we said last week that not only do they look diverse, they also look like uh, humble service. That gospel-saturated relationships are characterized by humility so that the more the gospel is taken into our lives... And the more it is thoroughly thought through and the more willing it will be turned out in our lives as we seek to serve those around us, even those who might not have any love for us, which is why in John 13, you see Jesus washing the feet of all of his disciples, including one that had no love for him, one that would soon betray him. And yet Jesus still stooped to wash his feet. And today we're going to add another feature to these gospel-saturated relationships and what we kind of want our relationships with each other to, to be characterized by, and that's the feature of honesty. We want to pursue honest relationships with one another. And as a pastor, as I consider the, the features of a gospel-saturated relationship that I'm perhaps most excited about and one that I really want to see kind of take root and bear fruit in our faith family, it's this one. It's I want us to be a faith family that is honest with ourselves about ourselves. We are honest with ourselves about ourselves and including how we engage other people, that we're honest with them about who we are as well. So that we begin to find our relationships with each other characterized by gospel-saturated honesty. I think this is where this passage takes us in 1 John chapter 1. Uh, As the passage was read a moment ago from verse 5 all the way down to 2-2, essentially, uh, this is what this text is getting after. It's getting after honesty in the church. And at first glance, this is one of those passages that you might read and not get too excited about. In fact, this is one of those passages that you might read and you might see some language in it that scares you or intimidates you. I mean, the word sin pops up all over this passage. But not only does this passage deal with sin, it deals with confession of sins as well. And that can be a scary idea and a scary concept for us. And so in many ways, this passage is a lot like bittersweet chocolate. That bittersweet chocolate, the moment you put it into your mouth, it kind of has a bite to it. It's sharp. And if you're not careful, you're going to spit it out too soon. And if you spit it out too soon, it's not going to take you to the sweetness. You're not going to be able to savor what it's designed to do. And that's essentially what this passage does for us. Yes, there's some bitter things in this passage. It does deal with sin. It does deal with confession. But if, as long as you allow this passage to just kind of sit on your spiritual palate long enough, eventually you're going to taste its sweetness. Because eventually these realities are going to drive you to the Savior and you're going to find yourself free to live an honest life because you have a Savior who loves you enough to cover you in all your sin and in all of your struggles. 
So it's really a remarkable, remarkable passage. It's a beautiful passage. But I know there are some who perhaps you, you have people in your lives who have dabbled with Christianity just long enough for the concept of sin to come up and what's wrong with humanity and what's wrong with the world. And they just dabbled with Christianity just long enough to get to those ideas and then it tasted too bitter to them so they spit it out. They didn't want anything to do with Christianity. And so they're still trying to account for what's kind of wrong with them or what's wrong with the world. It's just that they look to alternative solutions and to alternative voices to provide that explanation. And so some who may dabble with Christianity just long enough to then bail on it once sin is introduced, they may turn as an alternative to various forms, not all forms, but some forms of psychology and counseling. And they may step into a relationship with someone who can provide advice and counsel to them about who they are and what they're struggling with and and sometimes those relationships can lead to this, uh, can lead people to kind of pass the blame so that they get the counsel. You know, what's wrong with you isn't really inside of you. What's, what's wrong with you is everything around you. It's not inherent to you. It's outside of you. And so they'll point to the environment. They'll point to relationships. They'll point to various things that, that uh, cause them to struggle in this life. And eventually they just learn to pass the blame and they don't deal with the reality of sin in their lives and they're not not necessarily led to the Savior. So there are some who kind of run in that direction, but then there are others who may not take that route. Instead, though, in order to kind of make sense of the struggles in their heart and make sense of the struggles in the world around them, they'll just kind of turn to uh, the subjective flattery of their friends. They'll surround themselves with nice people who won't challenge them or contradict them. They'll, they'll surround themselves with favorable people that they can go to and say, hey, I'm, do you think I'm a selfish person? And they're going to say, no, you're not a selfish person. You're a great person. You're a good person. And, and they want to tell you that because they want you to tell them that when they're asking those questions. And so we just kind of get immersed with the subjective flattery of friends and we start measuring ourselves against each other to determine whether or not we are good or whether or not we are selfless or whether or not we are helpful to others. And and we might not be uh, accurate readers of one another if we're only surrounding ourselves with the subjective flattery of friends because sometimes those types of relationships aren't going to do for you what John the Apostle does for us in this passage. But then there's another approach, perhaps, if those who may be recoiling at the idea of sin and, and these themes, they might not go to counseling, they might not go to the subjective flattery of their friends, but they might then just try to escape uh, they, they just have to escape from the nagging sense of guilt or the nagging sense of shame that they, they're feeling as a result of things that they're aware of in them and thoughts that they're having and emotions that they're having and perhaps even things that they've done. And so they don't want to face that and they don't want to face all the problems in the world and so we just ignore it. So we try to escape living with our head in the sand and, and we can do that for a little while but eventually something's going to give. Eventually, something's going to go down either in your life or around your life that's going to expose the futility of trying to live with your head in the sand, that you can't ignore the reality of sin in the world. And sometimes it's a drastic, it's a dramatic cultural development or cultural experience that's shared by many people. There were a lot of people believing in sin after 9-11 happened, wasn't there? There's a lot of people believing sin is a problem when you consider all the sexual abuse scandals that come out just about every other week in our country nowadays. It, something like that comes to the surface and all of a sudden you have to kind of take your head out of the sand and account for what's wrong with the human condition. What, what is our problem and where is the solution? That's essentially what this passage is designed to tell us. About seven years ago when the, uh, there was a sexual abuse scandal that came out of Penn State University and 
And it, it wrecked a lot of people. It wrecked a lot of lives. It caused some angst across the country. And there was a guy by the name of David Brooks who was processing how everyone was responding to this event and the revelation of this kind of abuse. And, and so he went to the New York Times, or he often writes editorials in the New York Times, and he wrote about that event and our, our society's response to it. And I want to share with you his observations about our condition and our tendencies in this culture when these types of things pop up. He pointed out that many commentators were asking the question, how could they have let this happen? And of course, the assumption behind that question is that they would have done better had they been in the shoes of the officials or they had been in the shoes of the supervisors. They would have chosen a a better route. But Brooks notes that the historical record shows how often ordinary people don't get involved in tragic or unjust situations. And he would cite things like the Holocaust. He would cite things like the Rwandan genocide. He would cite street beatings in America. He would, you could cite today the unwillingness of pastors and churches to speak out about racial issues in society and not going to war against those those strongholds in people's minds and in people's prejudices with the gospel. And you could say this happens a lot. And psychologists often refer to it as the bystander effect. It's the bystander effect, and he would write, you know, in centuries past, people built moral systems that acknowledged this weakness. These systems emphasized our sinfulness. They reminded people of the evil within themselves. But unfortunately, according to Brooks, today we live in a society oriented around our inner wonderfulness. So when something terrible happens, we just try to blame it on everyone else. It's everyone else's problem. It's everyone else's fault. We're not mixed up in that. That's essentially what he's saying. And he says, you know, it's easy to vilify others from, quote, the island of our own innocence. It's easy to ask, how could they have let this happen? But the proper question is, how can we ourselves overcome our natural tendency to evade and self-deceive? Sadly, it's a question this society has a hard time asking because the most seductive evasion is the one that leads us to the deny to deny the underside of our own nature. That we want to deny the underside of our own nature, what the Bible describes as sin. There's a guy by the name of G.K. Chesterton back in the day, he made this observation about modern tendencies, and he says, you know, the modern world is not evil. He said, in some ways, the modern world is far too good. And he said, the virtuous, the virtues do terrible damage in that scenario. And essentially what he's getting after is this paradox that we live in. Just about every generation kind of finds themselves in this type of situation at some point in time. And that is, on one hand, we live in a very sinful age, and at points where we're kind of aware of it. But then at the very same time, we seem to be living in a very virtuous, high-minded age. And if we don't have a category for sin and dealing with sin, we're going to live in the delusion of virtue and ethical superiority and ethical progress. This is why you can't go into a coffee shop without buying coffee beans and not learning about where they came from and how they were, how they were put together and how they were sourced. Every business in our city is putting their ethical foot forward because we live in a virtuous, ethical, high-minded society that can oftentimes lull us to sleep and prevent us from dealing with the underside of our true nature. This is why you go to a concert, and every band, it seems, has a cause that they're advocating for. 
And every band is trying to get every concert goer to get passionate about what they're passionate about. And, and in some instances, it seems like if you're not joining in on their cause, then you are somehow less virtuous or less, less ethical than they are. So we live in a very high-minded society that confuses the issue of sin in our lives and trying to figure out, well, if that's true, then where do the sinners go? It seems you can't really be honest in this world about what you're feeling, thinking, or doing because if you're honest about what you're feeling, thinking, or doing, you're going to get blasted in the world that is. Just look at social media. You, something, a skeleton comes out of your closet, you are condemned, you are criticized, you are judged. That's the world that we live in. And so the world, it seems, isn't a safe place for people to, for people to be honest. It doesn't seem to be a very safe place for people to deal with the underside of their own nature. So the question is, what do we do with sinners? What do we do with those who are aware of the fact that there's something wrong in us and there's something wrong within the, the human heart that needs to be dealt with? Where do we go? Well, that's where the church comes in. The church is where sinners belong. The church is where people who recognize there's, there's something dark in me that is not good and it needs to be changed. And that darkness, that sin needs to be cleansed. It needs to be remedied by the light of the gospel. And so what do we do as sinners? We step into the community of faith and we fix our eyes on Jesus the Savior, letting him do the work that he's designed to do or he desires to do in us and through us. So if you're here this afternoon, I hope you did not come into church expecting the church to be a place that kind of props you up in a superior position over the people around you. I hope you have not stepped into the space today to be flattered. I hope you haven't stepped into the space today to be commended in your ethical virtues. I hope you've stepped into this space ready and willing to be honest with yourself about yourself. If you can't be honest with yourself about yourself in the church, you can't be honest with and about yourself anywhere else. The church is the only community, it's the only family where we can really go to work with against the underside of our own nature because we have the only remedy. The remedy to the underside of our own nature, that which the Bible calls sin, is Jesus. And that's why we come together and we form this family of faith. That's why we worship together, serve together, grow together. It's because we're dealing with these honest realities. And this is exactly what John is doing in this passage. And notice his approach. As he's writing this letter to a group of Christians that he loves and he's, he's aware of the fact that they're kind of getting away from the gospel. They've become deceived about who they are and they're not as honest as they were when they first met Jesus. They're not dealing with the underside of their nature anymore. And so John's writing this letter to help correct course, to bring some cleansing and some relief and some gospel-saturated perspective to their community. And, and notice where he begins in verse 5. When dealing with a human condition, it's very important that you see where John begins. If we're going to talk about what it means to be human and why, why we're not right, you're not going to answer that question well by looking to your right or looking to your left. You can't look to the people around you to answer that question. The only place we can look to really get a read on who we are and what's wrong with us is up. You are not each other's standard as it relates to what is good and right and pure and just. God is. John is aware of this. So when he dives into this issue, he doesn't start with you. He starts with God. And if you're going to think well about the life you've been given and your relationship with your God, you can't start by thinking about yourself. You have to start by thinking about God. And so this is what he says in verse 5. Verse 5, he says, This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light and there's absolutely no darkness in him. 
Think about what he's saying. John was one of the original 12 disciples. He journeyed with Jesus for three and a half years or so. And he's the disciple referred to in the Gospels as the one whom Jesus loved. He had an intimate relationship with Jesus the Savior. And as you get into verse 5, he's summarizing everything that he learned about Jesus, saying, this is the message I learned from Jesus, and this is the one that I want to communicate to you. And this is how he summarizes it. He summarizes the message he heard from Jesus by saying, God is light, and there is absolutely no darkness in him. This was his message. This is what he wanted to start with when dealing with these issues. So you think about for a moment what it means for God to be light. Light is a multifaceted metaphor. It speaks of many things about who God is and what God does and what God is alike. And so you just think about light for a moment. What does light do? Well, light is responsible for sustaining life, isn't it? In fact, life would not exist on this planet had God not said in the very beginning, let there be light. Had that not happened, we would not be alive. Our planet would not be doing what it's doing today. And so light gives life, light sustains life. But what else does light do? Light helps provide sight. It helps you see, right? So you step into a dark room, you turn on the light so you're not tripping over furniture, knocking over drinks. You need light to be able to see, to navigate a dark room. But not only does light provide sight, light provides a sense of security. Every child who's woke up screaming in the middle of the night And you walk in in response, the moment you turn on the light, what happens? Their their fear is dispelled by the light that is is now blasting out the darkness, bringing a sense of security, a sense of safety, a sense of comfort. And then you consider what that means for God to be light. What does he do for us? Well, he gives us life. He sustains our life. He speaks and reveals himself to us so that we can see uh, how to walk through the world that is, so that we can have a good understanding about who we are, what we are like, what the world is, what we can expect from the world, and how to deal with it. But then God is also a place of safety and security for us, isn't he? He's a refuge. He's a rock. And so we come to him because he does these things for his people. But notice the metaphor doesn't just refer to what God does for us. It refers primarily to who God is. So you think about this reference of God being light. This means that God is comprehensively and thoroughly good. This means that God is true. It means that God is righteous. It means God is trustworthy. He is pure. He is holy. He is light. And because he is that we should be willing to come to him for sight, come to him for security, come to him for life because he's good enough to give it to us. And so not only is light a multifaceted metaphor speaking many things about who God is and what God does for his people, it's also a metaphor that's, and this is what I really want you to think about, light is a discriminating metaphor. Light is a discriminating metaphor, meaning light discriminates against the darkness. This is why John would say, God is light, and in him there is absolutely no darkness. So it's discriminating. God discriminates against darkness. Scientists tell us today that, that you know, even on the sun, as bright and as luminous as the sun is, there's still black, dark spots on the sun. But when it comes to who our God is, there are no dark spots. There is no shade to his character. And I can't tell you how important that is to kind of frame your understanding of who God is because most people in the world do not believe this. 
most, perhaps some people in this room, you do not believe that God is light and in him there is no shade of darkness. Perhaps you've been conditioned by a cultural narrative or, or a family tradition or a spiritual heritage that says God is not light with no darkness. God is actually everything. And so being everything, God involves both light and dark. And so you have a perspective on God that, yeah, he's light, but there's some shadiness to his character. There's some darkness to him. And this is why... You look at the darkness in the world, some people draw the conclusion that God is not trustworthy. God cannot be a refuge for us. He's not light because you look at all the darkness that surrounds us in this world and you you draw the conclusion that that is the projection of God's nature. And so when you find yourself tempted, where do you go? You don't go to God because you don't know if he's trustworthy. You find yourself suffering, you don't go to God because you don't believe God is good. You believe that God is light and dark, but here the one message John is communicating that he learned from Jesus is that God is pure light. There is no darkness in him. There is no shade in him. There is no dark spot. And as a result, he is utterly trustworthy. We can come to him with our dark spots and and he, by his grace, will cleanse our darkness and purge our sin and cover us in ways that only he can. You don't want to have to run and hide from God. You can draw near to God because he is light In every moment of every day, God is light, God is light, God is light. In the book of James, the writer of that letter would say something very similar, and he would draw this distinction for the first century church, saying, look, don't think about God as being dark or shady. He's not. God is light. And so listen to what he says in reference to temptation in James chapter 1. He says, no one undergoing a trial should say, I am being tempted by God, since God is not tempted by evil, and he himself doesn't tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own evil desire. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He is not dark. He's entirely, comprehensively good. But so many of us are tempted to think that God is both light and dark, and so we interpret darkness as a projection of his nature, and we conclude he can't be trusted, he can't be relied upon, he can't be pressed into, but nothing is further from the truth. You think about how we kind of got in this situation. If you go back to the beginning of the Bible, right after God created all things and he declared all things good, then he, then he created the Garden of Eden. And then he created human beings, um, male and female, in his image, and he put them in the garden And there in the garden, they enjoyed intimate fellowship with each other and intimate fellowship with the God who made them. But you know the story changes around Genesis chapter 3, that darkness invaded Eden, and it showed up in the form of the tempter, the serpent, who we would later refer to as learn is the devil or Satan. And he slithers into the garden of Eden, and he catches Eve and Adam off guard, and he deceives Eve, and Adam just kind of stands silently by. But, But I want you to think about the temptation he gave Eve. The first thing he said to her was, did God really say that you shall not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? It was a subtle question, but do you you hear the shrewdness of it? Did God really say that you cannot eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? In other words, uh, do you really believe God is light? It seems to me that God may be holding something back from you. So the first temptation that entered the world concerned this reality about who God is, not being light, but being light and dark. Can you really trust God with his command? Can you really trust God with that prohibition? Again, it seems to me that God is dark. He's keeping something, 
He's keeping something from you. And what did Adam and Eve do in response? Well, how they responded in that moment provides the origin for darkness in our lives and the origin of darkness in the world. Because in that moment, they responded to the serpent by agreeing with him. They agreed with him that God is not light, that God is not good, that God cannot be trusted. And so they took of the, tree, they took of the fruit of the tree and they ate it and it cast the world into darkness. It broke our fellowship with our creator. It broke our fellowship with each other. It broke our fellowship with our environment. And all of a sudden, we find ourselves living in darkness. But the good news of the gospel is that the God of light did not choose to leave us in the dark. Even in that very same story, he shows his, the light of his grace by pursuing Adam and Eve when they were hiding in the wilderness, shrinking back from the presence of God because they feel guilty, they feel shameful, they're afraid of what God might do to them, and so they are hiding from him, but yet God goes looking for them, and he calls them by name. He says, look, you don't belong in the hiding in the dark. You belong here with me. And when he calls them out of the darkness, yes, he, he lays out the consequences for their sin and how the world is going to change, but he also gave them hope that things were going to be made right. And so in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, God promises that one was going to come, and this one who would come into the world would set the world right. He's going to crush the head of the serpent and rescue and redeem fallen people and you step into the gospel in John chapter 8, verse 12, and you hear Jesus say what? He steps onto the scene and he says, I am the light of the world. And we discover in the gospel that the God of light, the God who is light, did not leave us in the darkness. Instead, he invaded our darkness through the light of the gospel so that we might find hope, that we might find life, so that we might be reconciled to God and learn how to navigate the darkness of this world. And this is essentially what John is reminding his readers of, and it's what we want to think about when he says God is light and there's absolutely no darkness in him. And he's saying, I know this because I know Jesus. And Jesus shows me that God is like this. And because I know Jesus so well, I'm going to trust God because Jesus reveals God to me. And, he, and so I'm telling you that God is light, he's good, and in him there's no darkness at all. And then he shifts gears in verse, verse 6. And he begins to draw out some application. Okay, what does this mean for us? God is light and there's absolutely no darkness in him. How does this, deal, how does this affect our relationship with him and our relationship with each other? And so in verses 6 through 10, you essentially find these, these three if statements that, that John kind of throws out there and then he answers with a gospel truth. He answers with gospel perspective saying, I want you to live now an honest life. You can be honest with yourself about yourself because God is a God of light and he sent Jesus to cover you and to cleanse you and to forgive you. And so the question then becomes, if God is light, then we can conclude that light thrives in the light because that's where God is. Light thrive, life thrives in the light, but it will die in the dark. That's essentially what John is saying. If you want to live in the dark, if you want to live deceived, if you don't want to deal with the underside of your own nature, you're going to die there. Life dies in the dark, but it thrives in the light. And so these verses are designed to bring people out of the darkness and into the light to deal with the underside of their own nature in relationship with Jesus. And so notice what he says in verse 6. He says, if we say we have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we are lying and are not practicing the truth. He's saying if we're living a hypocritical life where we're hidden or we're fronting about who we are in community, we're lying and not practicing or living out our faith. 
So there's a sense in which many of us perhaps came into this space today and you're, you're tempted to hide your sin. You don't want to be honest about it. And perhaps one of the reasons for that is because you haven't found the church to be a very safe place. And if the church doesn't seem to be a safe place, you're going to continue to hide your sin and you're going to continue to live a hypocritical life and have a hypocritical relationship with your God if there is a relationship to begin with. And so he says, look, we have... We need to be honest about this. And so he says in verse 7, if we walk in the light, that is if we confess, if we get honest, as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. He's saying you got to get honest. Now think about what he's saying here. He's saying if we walk in the light, if we refuse to kind of walk in darkness, but we're going to step out in the light, we're not going to hide our sin, and we're not going to lie about who we are and what we're really feeling, thinking, or doing in a moment because God is light and he's changing us. He says if we step out into the light, then two things happen. One, we have fellowship with one another. This is one of the things I love most about church. If we can get to this point where we become honest about ourselves and we become honest with each other, that's when fellowship happens. Fellowship with each other happens when you and I stop fronting, when you and I stop putting up a facade and not letting people into what we're really thinking and feeling and struggling with. As long as we live there, our church is going to be anemic, our fellowship is going to be weak, but when we get real, that's when fellowship arises. You've seen this perhaps in a missional community that you've participated in. The moment somebody starts dealing with what's really going on in their hearts and they really start wrestling with the truth of the gospel, they really start wrestling with those sin patterns in their own lives, and they start confessing that and disclosing that, that's when everything in the room just kind of just moves deeper, doesn't it? That's when you find yourself more connected to that person than you've ever been before. Why? Because fellowship's occurring. Fellowship occurs when you and I recognize what we have in common, and the biggest thing you and I have in common is that we are sinners who sin. And so there's no point in fronting. There's no point in hiding that reality because as we do, it breaks our fellowship and it it dampens the intimacy we are able to enjoy with our God. And so we want to get real in our family of faith. We want to recognize that fellowship is birthed when we decide together to walk in the light. But then notice the promise. As you step in, as you move in this direction, not only do you have fellowship with one another, we're told that the blood of Jesus, his son, then cleanses us from all of our sin, saying that there's not a single thing that you can disclose about yourself that the blood of Jesus can't forgive and that the blood of Jesus can't cleanse. And I can't tell you how many times I've had conversations with with Christians who are struggling in their intimacy with God and they just feel like their faith is dead and not much is firing in their affections for Jesus. and, And usually... The more we kind of dive into it, usually what they discover is, well, they haven't been walking in the light. They've been living a fronted Christianity, and that fronted Christianity is an anemic Christianity. And as long as you live a fronted life, you're not going to have the joy of Jesus pulsating through your life. Walking in the light is where God is. If you want to be with God, you have to be honest about yourself, not only with yourself, but with God, as well as even with people around you. So you have fellowship with others and you recognize that the blood of Jesus is capable of cleansing you of all of your sin. You might want to circle that word all there. It's a big one. It means there's not a single sin that you are hiding right now that you can't bring into the light and that Jesus' blood is incapable of cleansing. But then you go on to verse 8. What does he say there? He says, if we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. In other words, if we're living our life ignoring sin, 
ignoring sin, saying we have no sins. We're just going to live a deceived life, and the truth is not in us. Now, one of the things that I think is happening in the church that John is writing to is that the church, not only is it proven to be an unsafe place so that people are hiding their sin, but perhaps the church has now gone sideways, that their doctrine is now off-key, So they're making statements. So if we say we have no sin, we have no need of Jesus, so we just kind of ignore that reality. And when you find yourself in a community of faith that doesn't bring up the topic of sin, that doesn't deal with the underside of human nature, chances are it's a church that's gone sideways. Chances are it's a church whose leadership is deceived. And chances are it's a church full of people who are deceived. And so John is wanting to correct that, saying, look, don't live as if you have no sin. Don't live your life in a high-mindedness. Remember that Jesus stepped into the world not to call the righteous, not to call the high-minded, but to call sinners to repentance. So it's time to get real. It's time to get honest. Any other life, any other approach to Jesus is deception. And so what does he say then? Next, in verse 9, he kind of brings the gospel solution. He says, in light of that, if we confess our sins... God is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. One of the things I love about that word confess, if you think about the origin of sin in the world, if darkness entered the world because human beings agreed with the devil that God isn't light, if that's the way of sin, then what is the way of salvation? Well, the way of salvation is to agree with God that God is light. And to agree with God when his light exposes our darkness, exposes our sin. And agree with God when God begins to say the solution is found in Jesus, in Jesus alone. You look at verse 9, that word confess can literally be translated agree. When you confess your sins, that's exactly what you're doing. You're agreeing with God about who he is. You're agreeing with God about what he says about you. And you're agreeing with God about what Jesus entered the world to do for you. If sin came into the world because we agreed with the devil, salvation comes when we agree with God. And we start confessing that dynamic. We confess it to God. And yes, we even move into a rhythm where we're confessing our sins to one another. This is what James would say in James chapter 5, verse 16. In a verse you read a moment ago, therefore confess your sins one to another and pray for each other that you may be healed. Now, reading that verse might cause some of you to want to recoil and think that that just feels too bitter because maybe you have some PTSD in your previous church experiences where you confessed sin and people didn't handle it too well, people criticized you, judged you, they didn't leave you to Jesus, instead they kind of left you out to dry and, and sitting in your own, your own darkness, they didn't help you out. And, and so you're wondering, well, can we really practice this? And, and my hope and my prayer is that we would become a church that does practice this dynamic. Because the reality is you're not gonna conquer sin in you through sheer willpower. You're not going to conquer sin within you by living an isolated, detached life that's not dealing with those realities, that's not addressing the underside of your nature. The only way you can conquer sin is by confessing it to death. The only way you can conquer sin is by confessing the fact that what is in you is wrong and what is in you can be changed because God sent Jesus to forgive you and to cleanse you, to do everything necessary for you. Now, When it comes to who we are as a church and kind of our rhythms, we have about three basic areas that we run in together. 
We run in our worship gatherings like this every Sunday, and then we run in what's called our missional communities, which are smaller clusters of disciples that meet in homes together to study the gospel, to love each other, and to find ways to bless their neighborhoods and serve the, those, the areas in which they live. And, but then there's a third dynamic to it, what we call our DNAs. And DNAs are these smaller clusters of same gender, three to five guys, three to five gals who get together in an intentional capacity. And a lot of times, these little groups kind of spin out of our missional communities. And DNA would refer to discipleship, nurture, and accountability. Now, for the past six years, kind of living in these, these basic rhythms, one of my concerns is I feel like most, a lot of our DNAs that take place, and perhaps you're in them right now and you're doing this, and I just kind of want to give a different perspective. I think a lot of our DNAs are spending too much time reading books. And they spend most of their time diving into theology. They spend most of their time developing um, a theological perspective. Now, I'm a theology guy. I love the Bible and I love books. I'm not saying that should not be done. But I am saying the sweet spot, fellowship happens not when you come together to discuss a theological concept. Not when you come together to discuss the books that you're reading together. And I love reading books with people. The sweet spot of fellowship will happen in the DNAs when you come together and you start practicing James 5.16. And you start confessing your sins to one another. And you start praying for one another. That's the hard work of heart work. And that's where this dynamic should be taking place. And so if you are in a DNA right now or if maybe you want to start a DNA, let me encourage you to put the accent elsewhere. Read your books, talk about theology, but spend the majority of your time dealing with what's going on inside your heart, confessing your sins one to another, and then praying for each other. Now, a couple of practical warnings about this rhythm. If we're going to start, if we're going to start kind of living in the light in this way by confessing our sins and, and getting honest and real about what we're struggling with, two, two words of caution. This dynamic of confessing our sins one to another, recognize that this is self-disclosure, meaning you are confessing your sins. You're not confessing somebody else's. This rhythm, this dynamic of confession is something you do in disclosing yourself. It's not something you do in stepping into a group and gossiping and sharing about what everybody else is struggling with. So we're not confessing anyone else's sin but our own when we practice confession. We're dealing with what's going on in our hearts. But then if you find yourself in this rhythm and self-disclosure is happening, then perhaps you're someone that somebody's come to and they're confessing their sins to you. How do you respond? Well, you don't respond by trying to fix them. You don't respond by trying to come up with some solution or some plan that they can follow to shake this or to shake that. That should not be your initial knee-jerk response to somebody who's confessing their sins to you. I mean, you consider James again, confess your sins one to another and fix one another, right? That's not what he says. He doesn't say that. He says, confess your sins one to another and pray for each other. So how do you respond to someone who's confessing their sins to you? Well, you turn your attention to Jesus and you start praying. Why? Because only Jesus can bring the healing that is needed. And so you pray for one another in response to the confessions of sins. Now, I know sometimes if you're in these relationships and you start confessing your sins to another person and they say, okay, well, I'm going to pray for you, the temptation you're going to find is say, well, that's so condescending. They're always wanting to pray for me. I was, you know, and I feel like I'm going, don't do that. Don't, don't allow the enemy to take something that is good, which is prayer and intercession, and turning it into something bad. Resist that temptation. 
confess our sins to one another, and pray together in response. Prayer is what drives us to the cross together, and when we find ourselves at the cross together, sympathy and empathy begins to flow fluidly and freely between our relationships. That's when fellowship actually happens. That's when things get real, and that's where we want to go together as a faith family. But then notice what he says next. He says in verse 10, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. In other words, this is a dynamic that says, you know, sin's not really a big deal. Sin's not serious. Sin shouldn't be talked about. It shouldn't be checked. It should just be ignored. It should just be pretended as, it's, as it doesn't even exist. And he says, if we say that, we make God a liar and his word is not in us. So you think about what might have been going on in the church for that to be a statement, and I think what it means is this, that that church has become really shallow. A community of faith that isn't dealing with the reality of sin is a shallow, shallow community of faith. And we don't want our fellowship with each other, our relationship with each other to be shallow. We want to sink deep into fellowship. We want to sink deep into our relationship with each other that is governed by our relationship with Jesus. So we don't want to be shallow and by thinking about sin as not being a big deal. And how does John counter that idea in verse 10? Well, he says in the very next phrase, he says, My little children, I'm writing you these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He himself is the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not only for ours, but also for the whole, for those of the whole world. In other words, never say sin doesn't exist because if you say sin doesn't exist, then Jesus died for no reason. Anytime we belittle the doctrine of sin in our understanding of God, our understanding of ourselves, we belittle the cross of Jesus. And he died for no reason. He died for no purpose if sin, your sin, isn't a reality. And so we don't want to be shallow and dismissive of the very reason that led Jesus to go to the cross to begin with. Jesus went to the cross because sin is serious. Jesus went to the cross because sin is a big deal. Jesus went to the cross because sin is separating God from those he loves. And so how does God deal with that issue? He sends Jesus to the cross where he would die as a sacrifice of atonement. That word atonement means covering. In other words, God is saying, in Jesus, I've got your sin covered. Your sin is a big deal because it required the death of my son, Jesus. But understand that your sin is not ultimately a disqualifier because Jesus died for your sins. So what that means is when you start getting honest about yourself with yourself and in bringing others into that honesty, what that means, that means you now have, you have nothing to fear. You have nothing to be afraid of. You don't have to be ashamed of your sin. You don't have to wallow in the guilt of your sin. You have nothing to be afraid of. Why? Because Jesus is always advocating for you. He's always defending you. He's always saying, hey, I've got you covered. I've got you covered. I've got you covered. And when you step out and you live your life underneath the covering of Jesus, all of a sudden you're free to live an honest life. You're free to identify what's really sinful about you. You're free to confess that. You're free to come to Jesus and believe that he can cleanse you of that and forgive you of that. It's a beautiful thing to live an honest life. It's hard to live a fronted life. 
It's hard to live a life putting up fronts and pretending to be people that we're not. It's a whole lot easier to be honest with ourselves about ourselves and to be honest with our need for Jesus' cleansing and for Jesus' forgiveness and to believe that Jesus is ready and willing to give all of that. That's a lot easier way to live. It's a lot fuller way way to live. It's the way of life that says that life will thrive in the light, but it will die in the dark. Any other way of life is just going to lead to death. Because light, life only thrives in the light. And so we want to consider the reason why we can live an honest life and we can establish an honest family of faith here called the Hallows is because Jesus has us covered. And this means we can take the risk of trying to confess our sins one to another. And, and let's say it goes wrong for you. Let's say you confess your sins to somebody and that person responds with critique, that person responds with judgment, that person doesn't respond with grace and truth, just responds with hard-nosed truth and, 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 and you walk away kind of wounded from that conversation. Even then, Jesus still has you covered. Even then, we realize that that risk is willing to take because Jesus has, us, has our back. He's advocating for us. He's defending us. He's cleansing us. He's covering us. He's doing all things that we need so we can take the risk of living a self-disclosed life, confessing our sins one to another and praying for each other. We can find life by walking in the light and being honest people and not people who are fronting with each other all the time. And so my encouragement to you tonight is to to consider whether or not you are engaging in this type of community. Are you engaging as an honest follower of Jesus and are you pressing into an honest family of faith? And if we discover there are parts in our church that aren't honest and aren't, uh, haven't been brought into the light, we want to confess that, we want to acknowledge that, we're not going to hide that, we're not going to put up a front in this city. We're going to be who we are, trusting Jesus to cover us, trusting Jesus to cleanse us, trusting Jesus to be enough for us in every moment of every day as we journey through this world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I come before you this afternoon, and I'm asking, first of all, God, I just want to praise you for being a God who is light. Thank you for being good. Thank you for being trustworthy. Thank you for being holy and pure and blameless. Thank you for being a God that we can confess to. Thank you for being a God that we can draw near to through the Savior. And I just thank you for that opportunity we have together here in this faith family. And I just pray that that we would take advantage of it. I pray that we would not be living our lives putting up a front, but that you would give us grace to disclose ourselves to each other and to disclose ourselves to you, confessing sins and praying for one another. God, I pray for honesty to characterize our church, for honesty to characterize our relationships with each other. And I pray that as the watching world kind of looks in and they see a community just being real, I pray that that they would be attracted to the Savior who allows us to be real, who actually requires us to be real. And so I pray, Jesus, that you would find us being real with you in our relationship, being real with each other in our relationships. And I just pray, God, that you would cause flourishing to happen all throughout our faith family. As cleansing occurs, as healing occurs, as restoration occurs, as life change happens. Because the light of your gospel is dispelling the darkness of our sinful natures. God, we ask and we pray all of these things now in Jesus' name. Amen.